0: Well, all of the songs that we have sung this morning have uh, prepared our hearts for uh, our text that we're going to look at this morning, and it's my privilege to invite you back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 19, and some of you may wonder why do I get uh, off track when we're going through a book like we have been going through the Gospel of John, and uh, there's lots of different reasons uh, that I get drawn away. One is that I want to make sure that we're all here. Uh, especially when it's an epic text like the one we're going to look at this morning. So sometimes I think the summer isn't necessarily the best time to tackle a text like this. i like like all, all, all of us to be back in town and back in the, 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 the schedule of a school and all those kinds of things to have maximum participation. But I also um, confess to the elders this morning that as I looked at the next text in our study of the Gospel of John... Um, I got scared, and uh, frankly, I was intimidated. And uh, and so, when typically you get intimidated by something, what do you do? You put it off, <laughs> you procrastinate, and you say, "Well, what are you talking about?" Well, if you look at your Bibles and you are up to speed with where we left off in our study of the Gospel of John. We uh, find ourselves this morning in John chapter 19, verse 17, and the title in my Bible simply says, The Crucifixion. I don't know of any more profound passage in all the Word of God than this one that we're going to look at this morning. And so let's read it together, John chapter 19, Verse 17, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified it was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts apart to every soldier, and also the tunic. And now the tunic was seamless, woven in, in one piece. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, quote, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Father, we are truly on holy ground this morning as we are looking at the the pinnacle of your plan of salvation, the death of your Son, Jesus Christ. And no human words can possibly explain the mystery of all that is taking place, all that took place on that fateful day. And Father, I feel completely inadequate, unworthy, Lord, to even read this text, let alone to try to preach this text. And yet, Father, I pray that as we look together at your very words, that, that the cross would, would, would come out of the text with such power and with such glory, Father, that if there's anyone here who is yet to truly commit their lives to Christ, to repent of their sin and to place their faith in him alone, that today would be the day of their salvation. We don't have to go anywhere else in the scriptures today to preach Christ, and, and his, his substitutionary atonement is right here in front of us. And I pray that we would truly see the power of the cross at work in our lives today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, this past Friday marked the 14th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center Uh, You may have watched the special ceremony that was held at the 9-11 Memorial in New York City that's become known now today as Ground Zero. That term, Ground Zero, uh, is used to describe the exact location where a massive explosion occurs or where the most severe damage occurs during an epidemic or some kind of natural disaster. That term, Ground Zero, zero was first used in reference to the devastation caused by the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that ended World War II. But ever since 9-11, Ground Zero has referred to the former site of the Twin Towers. And the tragic events that occurred on the morning of September 11, 2001, are forever etched in our minds. We will never forget where we were when we first saw those images, uh, those surreal images of planes ramming into the Twin Towers and, and then a few minutes later just watching in unbelief as these towers that were so iconic to our country and even the world came crashing to the ground. And since that The media has replayed these images over and over again, chronicling the series of of well-coordinated, well-orchestrated terrorist attacks by Islamic extremists against the U.S. And we're all moved by that horror and devastation of 9-11, but there was a far more horrific event that took place just over 2,000 years ago. And obviously, I'm referring here to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The death of God's Son is the most important event that has ever occurred or will ever occur in the history of mankind. And all that transpired that fateful day when Jesus hung there on the cross outside the city of Jerusalem is a profound mystery that will take eternity to grasp. And I believe like those of us who witnessed 9-11, those who witnessed Christ's crucifixion never forgot the images they saw on that day in AD 33 when the full fury of God's wrath against sin was unleashed and it decimated His one and only Son. At no other time in history has the massive destructive force of the wrath of God been experienced more severely than by Jesus on the cross. And the catastrophic damage that occurred at Hiroshima and Nagasaki and even in lower Manhattan combined doesn't begin to compare with what occurred at Golgotha. And that skull-like hill outside the city of Jerusalem will stand forever as the real ground zero. On Friday night, I came home from a football game and just turned the TV on and watched just a part of a documentary about the terrorist team that was assembled by Osama bin Laden and how they prepared and executed their diabolical plan to hijack planes and, 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 and fly them like missiles into American landmarks to inflict as, as much damage and loss of life as possible. I found it fascinating that, that in the days leading up to 9-11, the, the FBI and other federal agencies had received many clues warning signs even, that something like this was going to happen. And as I was studying this, this text and reflecting on all that we've studied so far in the Gospel of John, in a very similar way, Jesus himself provided many clues and warnings ahead of time that he was going to be crucified. And John was very careful to include some of these clues and warnings in his gospel. He wanted to make it very clear that Christ's death on the cross was no accident. It wasn't a coincidence. It was a well-coordinated, well-orchestrated plan devised and carried out by none other than God himself to save as many people who would repent and believe. And in the very first chapter, you may remember that John gave the first hint of Jesus' death through the words of John the Baptist. If you want to turn back there with me, just look at John chapter 1, verse 29. And here we're introduced to John the Baptist, and it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He went on in verses 35 and 36 to say it again the very next day, as Jesus was, uh, John was standing with his two disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. There was only th- one thing a lamb was used for in those days, and that was as a sacrifice. It was killed, it was slaughtered to make atonement for sin. John provided a second clue in chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple the first time. You'll remember Jesus said this in answering to the Jews when they said, Hey, what, what sign do you show us of your authority to do these things? Well, who gave you the right to do this? To, to cleanse the temple and to throw us out. And Jesus answered said, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up obviously referring to himself and how he was going to be destroyed and then come back to life three days later. The next clue we, we, we get is in chapter 3 through the famous conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And in chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus said this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the son of man be lifted up. And he uses the, the reference to that, that uh, time in, in, in Israel's history where they were complaining and God sent uh, venomous snakes to bite them, to punish them. And, and they cried out to Moses, hey, would you tell God we're sorry and tell him to take away these snakes? And God said, okay, I'll forgive him, but I'm not taking away the snakes. You make a bronze snake, put it on a pole, and put it in the center, of the, tent, te, uh, the center of the camp, and when anybody gets bit by a snake, they're to look at that in faith and believing that they can be healed, and they'll be healed. Essence, you see, that seems kind of funny and strange. Why wouldn't he just take away the snakes? That would have seemed a whole lot easier. Well, he simply wanted to provide a type or a picture or a foreshadowing of Jesus, hanging on the cross, and those who have been bitten by the snake of sin, if you will, can look in faith and be healed. And so Jesus borrowed that image. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Jesus made a similar reference to the Jews about being lifted up in chapter 8, verse 28. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Whenever He said, when I'm lifted up, it was a picture of Him being lifted up on the cross. In other words, He wasn't going to be killed in the way that the Jews killed people in those days, which was to stone them, and they would not be lifted up, they would be thrown down. And so again, these are all references, clues, hints that, that Jesus was going to be crucified. Look at chapter 10, John chapter 10, Jesus, or Jesus uh, told the classic parable of the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Chapter 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who's not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he's not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And then one more clue here, John chapter 12, we see Jesus' response to Philip when he told him about some Greeks who were wishing to see him. And in John chapter 12, this is how Jesus responded, verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You say, what does that mean? Well, he goes on, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and what? Dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then look down at verse 32, he says, and if I if I am lifted up from the earth, again, another reference to being lifted up on a cross, will draw all men to myself. And then if you still weren't sure what he was talking about, John provided his own commentary, verse 33, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So again, Jesus' death was not an Accident. It was a divine appointment. Jesus was not murdered by the Jews in the strictest sense of the term, but he willingly offered up himself as a sacrifice for sin. And what to us may appear to be this gross miscarriage of justice instigated by the Jews and uh, who essentially blackmailed Pontius Pilate into ordering Christ's crucifixion, the real mastermind. Behind this whole fiasco was God, the Father, who so loved the world that He sovereignly ordained that His Son would die to redeem us from our sins. Peter says this probably more clearly than anyone in the scriptures in acts chapter 2 verse 23 when he was preaching his 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 first sermon on the day of pentecost he was confronting the jews they were asking him what should we do and 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 he was sharing the gospel with them and he says this in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus a Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And so while the Jews were responsible For the crucifixion of Christ along with the Romans, on a human level, the ultimate responsibility for the crucifixion of Christ was his own dad. And Isaiah 53, verse 10, talks about how it pleased the father to crush his own son. And so the Roman governor Pilate and The Jewish religious leaders were part of a drama that was way bigger than they realized. And and as one commentator said, God used the most wicked, sinful act in history to bring about the greatest good, the redemption of lost sinners. Amen? And so we come to our text here in John 19, and rather than trying to to squeeze this sacred text into into one of my alliterated outlines that I often like to use, I thought it would be best just to, just to let the text speak for itself and just kind of walk through it this morning a verse at a time. Can we do that? Verse 17, after Jesus had been handed over to the Jews to be crucified, it says, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. So when Pilate realized that the Jews were never going to agree to Jesus being released, he washed his hands of the matter, if you remember that, and he handed him over to the execution squad, the Roman execution squad, which normally consisted of of four soldiers and one centurion. And everyone sentenced to death by crucifixion was required to carry their own crossbeam to the place of execution. That's why it says he was bearing his own cross. I thought it was interesting that starting with the church fathers, this, this verse has been interpreted as an allusion to the Old Testament account of Isaac carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. Remember that? When his father put the wood on his back and said, son, let's go, we're going we're to sacrifice to the Lord. And he's carrying the wood and he's like, hey, dad, where's, we got the wood, Where, where's the sacrifice? Little did he know he was going to be the sacrifice. And Abraham would lay him down on that wood in order to sacrifice him in obedience to God's command. And that story of Abraham and Isaac, really, again, was just simply a foreshadowing of how God the Father would willingly sacrifice His own Son to pay for our sins. According to the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at some point during this painful, shameful trek from the Judgment Hall of Pilate to the execution site outside the city, uh, this, this route that is typically referred to as the Via della Rosa, the way of suffering. Somewhere along that route, Jesus was likely struggling under the heavy weight of that crossbeam. Some estimate it was between 75 to 125 pounds, carrying that on his back after having been beaten mercilessly, uh, flogged, and scourged earlier that day. And so he was struggling under the weight of that and possibly slowing down the procession. And so the soldiers ordered a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross for him. And it says they came to the place called Golgotha. Translated the place of a skull. Now it may have been called that because it was littered with skulls and bones from all the people who had been executed there, it was a place of execution. Uh, Or the place itself may have resembled a skull. It may have looked like a skull. And and there's an ongoing controversy over the exact location of Christ's crucifixion. And if you've ever ever been to Israel, you know that there's two uh, sites that they take you to and they leave you to decide which one you think is uh, where Jesus died, where he was crucified. The traditional site is, is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is inside the city walls today but was outside the walls during the time of Christ. I personally have a hard time with this one because it's just been taken over by the Greek Orthodox and the Catholic churches, and they've turned it into the shrine where everybody comes in and bows down and worships and kisses everything, and it really just kind of turns your stomach and wrecks the whole experience. You get all excited, I'm going to go to Israel and see where Jesus died, and you get there and you're like, get me out of here, because it's just all this false religion and, and false worship, worshiping relics and, and all these things. The other site that's preferred by many evangelical Christians is called Gordon's Calvary. It's outside the present city walls in Jerusalem. It's a rocky hillside and it's fascinating because it actually looks like a skull. Because of the formation of the caves, there's a formation of two eyes and a mouth and it's really amazing to look at. Well, when it's all said and done, it's not important to know exactly where Jesus died. What we do know and what is important is that he was crucified outside the city walls, and that was very specific because that was a place of reproach and rejection. He went out, it says, means that he went outside the city walls, just like the Old Testament sacrifices for sin were taken outside, or when someone was stoned to death, they were taken outside the city walls because that was a sign of reproach. Look at what uh, the writer of Hebrews says regarding this matter, Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse eleven. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might be sanctifi- that he might sanctify the people from his own blood, suffered outside the gate. In other words, in the same way the Old Testament sacrifices were were killed or brought outside the gate, so was Christ brought outside the gate. And then notice it says in verse 13, I love this, so let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. I think that's a a reference, uh, or at least by way of application, we could say, you know what, it's nice and safe here inside the camp, here in our church, we need to go outside the camp where Jesus is at, and bear the reproach of Christ as we seek to share the gospel with unbelievers. Jesus didn't stay nice and safe and cozy, right? He was willing to endure that reproach for us, and it's the least we can do is bear that reproach for him as we seek to win other people to Christ. Notice verse 18, there they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. I think it's interesting that, like all the other gospel writers, John simply stated that Jesus was crucified. I mean, talk about the understatement of the universe. (laughs) That's all you got for us, John? There they crucified him? That's it? That's all the detail you're going to give us? Well, I think the gospel writers knew that their readers, living in the days of the Roman Empire, had witnessed countless executions, uh, crucifixions. It's estimated that by the time of Christ, the Romans had crucified some 30,000 people in Israel alone. And so there was no need for an explanation. Everyone in those days was fully aware of the incredible humiliation and unimaginable physical pain a person would go through when he was crucified. So there was, again, no need for them to go into all the gory details. We know that crucifixion was invented by the Persians, but then perfected by the Romans who used it as a a form of, of capital punishment that they reserved for the grossest crimes and the vilest criminals. In fact, it was so cruel and unusual punishment that no Roman citizen could be crucified without the direct order of the Caesar himself. They wouldn't subject their own citizens to this. It was so gruesome. We know that today in America, the most common form of execution is lethal injection or electrocution, the goal of both of these is to make a person's death as quick and painless and shameless as possible. Well, guess what? It was the exact opposite with crucifixion. Crucifixion was designed to produce a slow, agonizing death with maximum pain and suffering, along with the shame and disgrace of being put onto public display for the whole world to see. Several years ago, I came across a, a, an actual medical report on the physical death of Jesus. It was, it was in the Journal of the American Medical Association back in 1986. And it's the most exhaustive medical review of Christ's crucifixion ever published in a medical journal. I mean, they've got they've got diagrams uh, of where the, the nails would have gone, uh, and, and just it's, it's truly fascinating uh, to read. Uh, and I wanted just to read a portion of this. This is from a medical doctor's perspective. This is a description of a crucifixion. The cross is placed on the ground, and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The soldiers feel for the depression at the front of the wrist, and they drive a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist, deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action on the other wrist, but being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place, the left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. I was reading in another source that there was actually a, a, a tomb found, um, discovered, unearthed with a man who had been, uh, with a skeleton of a man who had been crucified, and, and they, they, they felt like they gained some knowledge about crucifixion, that they actually turned the, the, the victim's feet sideways and put the nail through the side feet so the guy was turned like this on the cross to make it even more excruciating. The victim is crucified now. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves as he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment. He places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet as the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through his muscles, nodding them with deep relentless and throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, the carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to, to exhale and bring in life giving oxygen. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint renting cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins a deep, crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids have reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. Finally, the combination of bodily shock and asphyxia overwhelm him, and he allows his body to die. And the excruciating agony of crucifixion subsides in death. I read all that because we've never seen a crucifixion. We've never witnessed a crucifixion. It was commonplace in that day. And I think if someone from AD 33 was transported to our generation... And they came to church this morning and they saw us wearing crosses around our necks and cross earrings and, 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 and seeing crosses around the church, they would be shocked. They would be abhorred. What are you doing? That's like, why don't you just paint electric chairs and lethal injections and, and put little needles around your neck? And, right? It was a shocking thing. I don't say that to make you throw away all your cross jewelry or whatever. That's just to say, praise God that, that Christ redeemed the cross, amen? amen? And now it is a symbol of, of hope and it's a symbol of victory and the defeat of sin and death and hell and Satan. But I would submit to you that, he, that despite all that physical pain, the infinitely greater suffering for Jesus was becoming sin for us and ultimately being separated from his Father. That, what was most, what was, that, that is what was most excruciating for Christ on the cross. It says here that Jesus was crucified alongside two thieves in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 12, that he would be numbered with the transgressors. These two robbers may have been accomplices of Barabbas. We talked about him a a few messages back, that that he was a notorious insurrectionist who, when given the option by Pilate, the Jews asked to be released instead of Jesus. And in in, in a very real sense, um, if there was one person that Jesus died for in their place, it was literally Barabbas. It's very likely that Barabbas was supposed to be hanging on that center cross that day. And Jesus took his place. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Now, it was customary for a criminal to be led to the place of execution by a man carrying a placard on which was written the crime for which they had been condemned to die, and later it was affixed to the man's cross above his head, and the purpose for parading the condemned criminal through the streets was to illustrate to the onlookers that crime doesn't pay. And the crucifixions that were performed in in the Roman Empire, they were performed in public places alongside major highways, so everyone would see the price to be paid for resisting or challenging Roman authority. It struck fear into the hearts of of the Romans uh, or, or those that were in subjection to Rome. And so when it was time to make this placard for Jesus, Pilate ordered it to say, Jesus the Nazarene the king of the Jews. And he had it written in three languages, Greek, Latin, and Aramaic, which were the three main languages commonly spoken in that day. And so the point was, everyone could read it. Everyone would know why this man was hanging on this cross. Verse 21, And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written I have written. So this cat and mouse struggle is still going on between Pilate and the, 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 the Jewish religious leaders, and, 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 and they just despise one another, and, and it was tit for tat back and forth, and so the Jews protested here the wording, Pilate's wording, and he wanted it, they, they wanted it changed to say that he claimed to be the king of the Jews, and yet Pilate refused to change it. And I think this was his way of getting even with the Jewish religious leaders for blackmailing him and into ordering Jesus' crucifixion. And even though he knew he was an innocent man and they were just jealous of him, they had backed him into a corner and said, hey, we're going to tell on you, we're going to to tattle on you to, to Caesar. And you're going to lose your position and possibly your life if you don't give us this man. You don't give us what we want. Well, at this point, he was done giving in to their wishes he had done their dirty work long enough, and he, he, he knew that suggesting that their king was crucified like a common criminal would be the ultimate insult and embarrassment to the Jews. One commentator I thought described it well. He says, quote, the superscription above Christ was an affront to them for several reasons. First and foremost, although they certainly were not loyal to Caesar as they had pretended to be, the chief priests vehemently rejected Jesus as their king. That the inscription identified him as the Nazarene from Nazareth made the insult worse. Nazareth was an insignificant Galilean village whose rustic inhabitants were looked down upon with scorn and contempt by the sophisticated Judeans. When Philip excitedly reported to Nathanael, hey, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, the latter replied incredulously, can any good thing come out of where? Nazareth? Are you kidding me? The Messiah is coming from Nazareth? The idea that a victimized man from such a town, especially one dying a criminal's death on a cross, could be Their king, if that was the thought, was ludicrous. Worse, it was a direct affront both to the leaders and the nation. Pilate was expressing his contempt for the Jewish people, implying that such an individual was the only kind of king they deserved. This is what you deserve. Here's your king. Have fun. And yet even though Pilate believed he was insulting God's people, and ultimately God himself... He was unwittingly being used by God to proclaim the truth about the nature of Jesus, who Jesus really was. He was the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Pilate got it right. He just didn't know it. And then the text turns to the soldiers. Verse 23, then the soldiers, when they had crucified, Jesus took his outer garments and made four parts apart to every soldier and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was seamless woven in one piece, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Part of the customary cruelty of of the callous and mercenary soldiers who who carried out these crucifixions, as they would divvy up the belongings of those who were being crucified. And every Jew wore five pieces of clothing. There was the sandals, there was the turban, there was the belt and robe, and then the inner tunic, kind of the undergarment. And so it seems, as John describes here, that each of the four soldiers picked one of the less expensive items, and then they agreed to gamble for the tunic. That, that was maybe the most important, that was the, the, the biggest treasure to have, um, and, and so they, it says they cast lots, which was like throwing dice or drawing straws, is what that was. And while these soldiers may have been thinking, hey, this is going to bring me some, some big bucks on eBay someday, I've got the tunic of Jesus, right, whatever they were thinking, these soldiers were completely unaware of the fact that they were fi- fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And one of the greatest messianic psalms is Psalm 22, and in verse 18 it actually says that, that Christ's clothes, the Messiah's clothes would be gambled for. And so they were just fulfilling scripture. And so it says the soldiers did these things, but notice verse 25, it says, but, but, Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. So here we have this, this sharp contrast uh, to, to the soldiers who had no care, no respect for Jesus whatsoever. And then John introduces these four women who were among Jesus' most loyal followers and helped support the ministry of he and his disciples. And, 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 and they actually gave contributions. It says that in Luke chapter 8 verses 1 through 3, that they supported the ministry of Christ and and his apostles. And so these women were so devoted to Christ, they were the last ones at the cross and the first ones at the tomb. We're going to see these ladies again here shortly. And so you have four ladies mentioned here by John. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, obviously. You've got Mary's sister, who, from other references, we find her name was Salome. uh, And she was the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And then you have Mary, the wife of Clopas. We're not sure who she is. Um, Could have been uh, one of the two disciples on the Emmaus Road uh, in Luke chapter 24. And then there's Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene was, of course, the, the woman who Jesus had cast out the demons and uh, she was apparently a wealthy woman. In fact, we got to go to Magdala, where her apparent home was this last time we were in Israel. And they just have unearthed the, the city of Magdala. And it's a fascinating excavation site uh, to just to look and consider. This is where Mary Magdalene was from. It's just right on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee and, and uh, a very wealthy city. And obviously, she was a great supporter of Of Christ, particularly because of the impact he had had on her life, delivering her from those demons. But put yourself in these women's position for a moment. And I think you would agree that the fear, the anguish that they were experiencing seeing their beloved Lord hanging on the cross, being crucified. It's just unimaginable. But the one who was most distraught about it all surely was Jesus' own mother, Mary. And I believe this was the moment that Simeon, the prophet, had warned her about when he had held her newborn son, remember that, in the temple when he was just eight days old and, and, and they had brought him to be circumcised and, and when Simeon, he, Simeon saw them bring this little one, he went right over to them and grabbed him out of their arms. Can you imagine that? Just somebody coming, told a stranger coming and grabbing your, your newborn out of your arms. He just grabbed him and started praising the Lord and prophesying that this was the Messiah, that he'd waited to see the salvation of the Lord and now he's looking at God's salvation with his own eyes. And it was a tremendous encouragement to, to Mary and Joseph, but he ended his prophecy By saying this to Mary, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. And I'm sure that Mary felt like a sword had pierced her as she stood at the foot of her son's cross. Verse 26, when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. This is a beautiful picture of Christ's compassion. That in the midst of his own pain, his own anguish and agony, as he was bearing man's sin and God's wrath, he was concerned for his mother. And he showed her tender care and compassion, and he honored his beloved mother, and showed great confidence in his beloved disciple John. And we know this is John. We've we've come to realize whenever he says this, uh, uses this phrase, um, "the disciple whom he loved," that was a, a reference to himself. John was too humble to to mention himself by name. And so he just called himself the disciple whom Christ loved. And so we know this is John, the author of this gospel. He was there. No one better to give us a firsthand account of the crucifixion. He was there, standing at the foot of the cross. And so he shows great confidence in his beloved disciple John by entrusting her to him for safekeeping. He was basically saying, hey, I want you to take care of my mom like she's your own mom. Evidently, by this time, Jesus, or excuse me, Joseph, uh, Jesus' earthly father had already died and that Mary was likely a widow. Furthermore, at this point, none of Jesus' brothers were convinced that he was the Messiah. They were still kind of making fun of him. They weren't buying it that their big brother was, was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. It wasn't until after he rose from the dead that they embraced him as their Messiah. We we find them in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. They're in the upper room awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit alongside their mom. Mary was there. And so it made sense that John was the most likely candidate to care for his mom. Without a husband, without believing children, he was the man to care for her. And then in the white space there between verses twenty seven and twenty eight, based on the other gospels, it says that the sky grew pitch black from noon till about three o'clock. During which time, we know Jesus was separated from his father as he became sin for us, as it says in 2 Corinthians five twenty one. He endured the penalty that we deserve to pay. By being separated from the Father, Romans 3.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And that word death means not just you die, it means being separated from God. And so it was in that white space, the other gospels fill in, where Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? John left out that part for some reason. He goes on in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill scripture, said, I am thirsty. Again, this this whole deal was going down as prophesied in the Old Testament and as planned before eternity passed. It was just going down like clockwork. And Jesus said, well, I've I've done everything, I've said everything that I need to say. Well, but there is a there is a prophecy about being thirsty, and so to fulfill that, he said, I am thirsty. And again, I don't think he was just saying it. <laughs> oh, time for me to say that line. No, oh, he was really thirsty. He experienced real physical thirst that was just insatiable. It was just and and and, and apparently when you were crucified your thirst was just insatiable, it was just intense. And so he said, I'm thirsty, I thirst, and, and it says in verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. One of the soldiers dipped a, a sponge into the sour wine that they had brought along for them to drink, and it says here they tied it to a hyssop branch. Uh, some translations say that they, they put it on the end of a javelin or, or the end of a spear, Either way, they got it up to his mouth, they pressed it to his lips. And don't be confused here, Um, this is not the same drink as the vinegar mixed with gall that they had offered him earlier. You remember, he refused to drink that, right? Because that acted like a painkiller, kind of like morphine. Would have, would have deadened the pain of the crucifixion. He didn't want any of that. He wanted to experience the full weight of the wrath of God. He wanted to remain fully conscious as he bore our sins, so he refused any kind of narcotics. And again, this is another direct fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 69, verse 21 talks about his thirst. And then we come to the Supreme statement, I would say, of the cross, of the seven statements that Jesus made on the cross that are recorded in scripture, this has to be the supreme statement. Verse 30, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That word, it is finished, or that phrase, it's really just one word in the Greek. It's tetelestai. And according to Matthew and Mark, Jesus didn't just say, it is finished. He said in a very loud voice, it is finished. He shouted it from the cross. This was a, this was a triumphant declaration. This was a shout of, of victory. And man, that, that, that statement, that word, tetelestai, man, it's, just, it's just pregnant with meaning. And Jesus meant that the work of the Father that that had been given him to do was done, and God's plan of redemption was complete, and atonement for sin was accomplished, and Satan was defeated, and death was rendered powerless, and all the types and ceremonies and prophecies of the Old Testament had been fulfilled through him, and God's righteous demands had been satisfied, and God's wrath had been appeased, and a way had been provided whereby sinners could be saved, and the once-for-all sacrifice for sin was made, no more sacrifices were ever needed. Do you realize that? That nothing needs to be nor can be added to Christ's finished work on the cross? Someone said it this way, salvation is not a joint effort of God and man, it's entirely a work of God's grace appropriated solely by faith. In other words, all you have to do is believe. Warren Wiersbe relates the the story of an eccentric evangelist named Alexander Witten, and he was approached by some young man who flippantly asked, Hey, what must I do to be saved? And Witten replied, It's too late. And he went about his work, and the young man was alarmed and said, well, do you mean that it's too late for me to be saved? Is there, is there nothing I can do? And wouldn't said, too late. It's already been done. The only thing you can do is believe. There have been papyri receipts for taxes that have been recovered in the region of Jerusalem. And the word tetelestai is written across them, which meant... Guess, paid in full. to die paid in full. It's, it's done, it's, it's finished. You don't know anything. Your debt is canceled. And obviously the point is our sins have been paid in full. It is finished. And notice, this is interesting, the order in which John records this last phrase. Don't miss this. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now that Christ's mission was accomplished, it was time for him to surrender his life. It says he gave up his spirit, which signifies, again, that his death was voluntary, just like he had promised it would be, that no one was going to take his life from him. He was going to give it up on his own initiative. John, John chapter 10 talks about that. And so Jesus determined the time of his death. He was in full control of his faculties the entire time he was on the cross. And notice, rather than his spirit ebbing away, which would have caused his head to slump forward, right? You give up the spirit and you die. Your spirit goes away, right? It was the exact opposite. He bowed his head first. And then he delivered he gave up his spirit. Like... Okay, it's done. I'm going to die now. I mean, he did something that no mere man could do. You can't determine. None of us can decide how or when we're going to die. You can't do it. It's humanly impossible, but Jesus did. See, God takes our spirit when he wants to. But because Jesus was God... He had freedom over his spirit, and he gave up his spirit when he wanted to. We're going to see in the next section, in verses 31 through 33, that they wanted to get the guys off the cross sooner than later, and so they went to break the legs of, the, of, the, of these three Uh, crucified individuals just to speed up the death process, but when they came to Jesus, they they realized he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs, which, by the way, was another fulfillment of prophecy that no bone would be broken. But the fact is that, that, that Jesus died sooner than normal. The other guys were still alive. He died sooner than you normally did when you were crucified. Again, shows us as proof that he gave up his life on his own volition. He wasn't waiting around to die for crucifixion to take its gruesome course. He just, he ended it when he wanted to end it. Again, his life was not taken, it was given. That difference makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? His life was not taken, it was given. Given for all those who would repent of their sin and place their faith in him. The question is, have you repented of your sin, and have you embraced Jesus Christ by faith as your personal Lord and Savior? I prayed earlier that typically when we're going through God's Word and we want to end with a, an appeal to those who are not saved, to those who are not Christians yet, we, we say, now turn to this passage, and let's go over here and see, and we remind you, right, of the cross. The cross. And why Jesus died. Well, guess what? We don't have to turn anywhere. It's right here staring us in our face. And if there's ever been a time for you to repent of your sin and believe Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's today. It's now looking at his crucifixion that he died for you on the cross. I don't know of any other passage in the word of God that could be more powerful, more compelling for you to repent and believe than this passage Right here. I got nothing else. If it's not now, what's it going to take? What's it going to take for you to be saved? It doesn't get any better than this. It doesn't get any more powerful than this. It doesn't get any more convicting than this. You probably remember that a couple days after 9-11... As the rescue workers were picking through that pile of debris in search of survivors, they made an amazing discovery. And when the towers had collapsed, two huge pieces of steel had fallen and embedded themselves in the rubble, you remember, in the shape of a cross. And that became a symbol for those workers as they continued to work tirelessly in the midst of that heart-wrenching wreckage. It was a symbol of peace and hope which inspired them. A similar circumstance was witnessed back in the 1800s by a, an English hymn writer named John Bowering. He was sailing along the coast of southern China, and, and on the shore were the remains of this great cathedral that had been destroyed by a typhoon, and the only thing that left, was left standing was one wall, that was taught by this huge metal cross. And it was just such a picturesque scene that he was moved to write the lyrics to one of the most beloved hymns in church history. It's called, In the Cross of Christ I Glory. And it says this, In the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime, When the woes of life o'ertake me, hopes deceive and fears annoy, never shall the cross forsake me, lo, it glows with peace and joy. May we always and only glory in the cross of Jesus. And may it be the greatest source of joy and peace and comfort and hope that we have in this life. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the cross. And while it may seem strange to some that we would glory, glory in something as, as evil and heinous and as gruesome as this diabolical form of execution, we know that through Christ going through that for us, our sins have been forgiven. We've been cleansed by the blood that Jesus shed in our place on the cross. And Lord, no words that we could conjure up could ever be enough to thank you and praise you for the great love that you demonstrated towards us at the cross. But I pray that as we consider the love that was shown to us in Christ there at Golgotha, at ground zero, when you devastated, you decimated your own son by pouring out all of your wrath on him. Lord, that as we consider that, it would just compel us to want to love Jesus more, want to live for him, and honor him and obey him with our lives, and to tell everyone that we come in contact with about the love of Jesus that was demonstrated at the cross. And so we're thankful, Lord, this morning for the power of the cross. We are here today because of that power that has transformed our lives. We want to praise you for that now, in Jesus' name, amen.